Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. And today's show feels like deja vu to me because I think we've done this topic in 2023. I think we did this topic in 2022. It is becoming an annual tradition, uh, but we have to talk about the offensive rating explosion. Offenses in the NBA are on fire. They're on another level. We're setting records left and right. We'll we'll talk about a few today. Uh, I, I just... Cody, this is the most efficient month in NBA history. And I've said that before. I've said that before. Usually you say it at the end of the season, which is what's so alarming right now. We actually had this earlier in the year in the Pacers video, the Pacers-Hawks game that was like 170 six to 175 whatever the heck the final score uh of that game was they scored three they scored 309 points so it wasn't 176 175 but it, it was a lot of points and i talked about at the beginning of each season a trend where the november offensive rating is getting higher and higher and higher that's a big deal because offenses take some time to catch up to defenses every season and now we're in december and we've already set the record for the most efficient month we are on pace for the most efficient month uh, in the history of the entire league, probably the history of the entire sport, because it's ridiculous. And I, I, I think we have to uh, talk about it. Yeah. What, what is the current like record for the highest offensive rating in a single month? Do you have that on hand? Because I, I know we mentioned this a lot. Like I think last season, like pretty much every podcast episode, at some point we were like, "Oh, and the offensive rating for this month is now at blah blah blah." It's at this now. So, like, you know, I apologize if you've heard this story before, but everyone, the story is continuing, right? The fellowship just ended. We're in two towers range right now. So, Ben, what what is the current record? We we need a counter for how many Tolkien references you've done this <laughs> just this month alone. Have you been reading a lot of Tolkien? You're really on fire with this. I don't know. I just I just feel like. Yeah, we're not even going to psychoanalyze that. Okay. It just, it just had... feels like those are the best references to to come up with. I'll try and I'll try and improve like how recent my references are, Ben. Maybe I'll try and not rely on that too much. I should have a deeper bag than like mm-hmm. those singular yeah, references. So I'll, yeah. I'll work on it in the new year. Yeah. You've at least done a little Hobbit and a little Lord of the Rings. You've had a number of smog references. I did. Uh, yes, yeah. probably something to do with going and destroying the Fellowship. I don't want to give away any spoilers for anyone uh, who hasn't read that. But okay, offensive rating by month. Let's just back let's back up just a little bit. In February of 2019, we started to see this explosion. And we don't necessarily have like the official offensive rating by month easily accessible throughout all of NBA history. But we know based on the full season averages that we saw this boom. We're st- we might still be experiencing this boom that is taking us into record-setting territories that's never been touched. Like in the 1960s, teams were probably scoring about 90 points every 100 possessions and 95 points every 100 possessions. And then as the 70s hit, you got into 100 points every 100 possessions. Maybe you get up to 104, 105 by the end of the decade. And then in the three-point era, which came in in 1980, we just sat in a, in a tight band of efficiency that just, Cody, was NBA basketball. And it was like 104 to 108 points per 100 possessions every once in a while we went a little bit outside those lines but that was it that was the balance it was tough to score you needed isolation scoring there was a lot of offensive rebounding we shifted away from offensive rebounding we tried to get more effective with turnovers uh we went through all kinds of little rule changes illegal defense and zone and things like didn't matter 
didn't matter, 107, 108, whatever. February 2019, 112.5 offensive rating. That might have been a record. We don't know. But I think by February of 2021, we certainly would hit a record, which was 114 points per 100 league-wide. Now, now again, this is the average. This is the average. Before this, the best offenses in NBA history were 115 points per 100 possessions. So we're talking about Steve Nash's Suns, Magic Johnson's Lakers, Larry Bird's Celtics, Michael Jordan's Bulls could get up there. Like, 115 was a gold standard. And no offense was ever at 116. And yet the average in February of 2021 was 114. Well, that didn't last long because uh, in the next month, they went to 114. 2022, by the time you get to the end of the year, we're at 116 points per 100 possessions. That's the league-wide average in the NBA. So if you, if you had a 115 offensive rating, Cody, in that month, that would be the same offensive rating as the most efficient, greatest offenses ever for like the first 50, 60, 70 years of the league, and you would be below average. You would be a below average offense in March and April of 2022. Well, guess what? January of 2023, we hit 116.4. That was a new record. And then a couple months later in March and April, we hit 117. That was the average offensive rating. And right now, in December, we don't even have to fast forward and wait till everybody gets lubricated and warmed up and on the same page. December of 2023, as we are recording this, it is the 21st, so the month is not quite over. The league-wide average offensive rating in the NBA is 118 points per 100 possessions. We might be headed for 120 league-wide as an average I mean I might have to get on the couch in this episode what what's is there too is there such a thing as too much offense is this absolutely out of control I mean that's the difficult thing when you say a number like that because there's so many branching places I want to go to try and work through this because I I don't even know like what the right questions are in this case right like is, is the right question like how high is it like what is the point where it's like we actually can't get a higher league average like I'm not sure our teams like I don't even know what the lowest offensive ratings are I think like the Portland Tra- Portland Trailblazers at one point had the lowest offensive rating like we have some pretty poor teams that are bringing it down but there's always bad teams in the NBA that sort of uh bring that number down so I don't really want to focus on that too much but is there something going on with like defenses is schematically are things just like too good at this point I, I just don't know Ben what do you think do you think that there's an upper level to where this offensive trend is going or are we just going to keep going until like everyone's a, a Nikola Jokic level 125 offensive rating uh, during the regular season? I, I don't, maybe 125 isn't going to be good in a few years. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't understand my, my takeaway or, or my explanation, I should say, is that part of this is the increase in skill and putting more skill on the court. We'll try to talk about that. Uh, in a little bit, but it's uh, mostly obvious stuff when we say skill shooting and uh, ball handling and just players that, you know, we don't, we no longer have the, the enforcer power forward, the Rick Mahorn, Charles Oakley types. We no longer have that. You need to be able to shoot. You need to be dynamic with the ball to make it in this league. So skill is one. The second is X's and O's. They are on another level. Teams have gotten smarter. Tactics and strategy are the best. 
uh, that I think they've ever been. And that that's natural and that it builds off the past. And maybe the way the sport is set up, the offense is always going to have an inherent advantage over the defense because the defense builds off the past as well. But it's like the offense takes a step forward and the defense reacts. That's been the pattern for about two decades. Uh, I think in the late 90s and early 2000s, you could say maybe it went the other way. Uh, and they had to get rid of illegal defense rules and things like that because we can talk about that more. And I think that's the last thing. What did I say? Skill, X's and O's, and the rules. Those are the three things to me. Skill, X's and O's, and the rules. And we've certainly talked about officiating and whatnot. I think they've done a good job this year of cleaning up some of the things we've had grievances about in the past. And I think, for the most part, the actual refereeing during NBA games is fantastic. I think it was our friends uh, over on Nerder, she wrote, that had the line like, the NBA doesn't have a referee issue, they have an officiating issue, meaning the refs actually enforce the game better than ever. They've got replay and they've, they have all these tools where they assess the, the, assess the uh, officiating constantly, but there's still this issue of like, Cody, you're allowed to take three steps and you're just allowed to run people over and dribbling continues to become more and more lax. Like, yes, every once in a blue moon, I think there's a palming or a carrying violation, but the players are pushing that to deeper and deeper levels. And I mean, even sometimes in our comments, like it seems like the younger generation is very excited to be like, they, they think you're like some sort of police officer or wet blanket. If you're like, don't take three steps, they're like three steps, four steps, gather step, hop step, you know, dribble with three hands. It doesn't do anything. Let's do it. Let's let's do it. And all of this contributes to massive advantages for the offense, basically. So a couple of things that I'm thinking of when we, when we just look at the offensive explosion in general, is it like a good thing, right? And like you just said, there's probably some younger fans and not even just younger fans. I'm sure there's fans across the board that are like, this is awesome. The fact that like offenses are as dynamic, as unstoppable as they are. This is what the NBA should be. It should be exciting and fast paced. And uh, here's a bunch of great stuff, right? And, you know, if we look at the three things building up to this high level of, of offense, you look at skills and X's and O's. I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that like having the highest level of skill and highest level of X's and O's schematically is inherently a good thing, right? You want your league to be filled with the most skilled and like the best schemes like possible, right? I, I don't think there's any any possible world where somebody would look at the NBA and be like, you know what? We need less skilled players. We need more players to just go out there and be muscle out there. But then the rules, Ben, I think this is really interesting because I think, I don't want to say as a community, because I don't think we'll ever figure out anything as a community, right? I think the NBA in general should sort of look at this and be like, where do we want the NBA to be? What do we want it to look like, right? Because if we like this offensive explosion, great. Then ignore the things that we're bringing up here. Ignore all of the like tightening up of dribbling rules and whatever else and just let it keep exploding. This is awesome. But then if we actually do want to tinker, if, if we want to pull a couple of levers and be like, you know what? Let's bring it down to 110. If we can get our offensive rating around 110, things would be a lot better. Um, I, I don't know what they have to do. Like, I don't know what you can do like as a system of the NBA to try and make that happen. So Ben, do you think this is even something that should be pursued? Is this something you want to talk about in terms of like how we can actually depress offensive rating a bit to get to that point? I don't know. Those are my first thoughts now that we're really talking about this explosion. Oh, I think it's I think it's relatively easy. The rules can be flexed in one way or the other to benefit the offense or the defense. So 
let's take uh, this thing that we've mentioned before on this show and in videos I've chronicled them in, in painstaking detail, leaning in and initiating contact as the offensive player, right? Whether you dip a shoulder or you push off with your arm or the one that I'm going to credit James Harden for inventing, even though in basketball it's hard to like pinpoint the inventor, he mastered it, he popularized it, he excelled with it. The, the in-between between the shoulder and the arm is his club. He holds the he holds his forearm out and he runs into you with his forearm. All of that contact, Cody, all of it that I just outlined used to be an offensive foul. You could not drive and move your body at force into a defender's space. Back in the 70s, you'll see games where the defensive player barely gets touched. It's it's the act, it's the violence of the offensive player not going to the basket and making a move, but driving himself into the defender. They'll be running alongside each other, dribble drive. He leans in immediately. Tweet, tweet, tweet. No one has to fall. There's no one's nose flopping. The hit isn't even that hard. And it's an offensive foul. At some point that became neutral. At some point in the eighties and nineties or whatever, you were allowed the contact. The offensive player might initiate and the defensive player could resist or take the hit, and it was neutral. We've come all the way in the last, like, 50 years from that being an offensive foul to that being a defensive foul. Oh, and as a lovely bonus, usually free throws in the act of shooting because continuation rules, that's another thing that is just changed by a mile. Continuation, the idea originally was... You got a free throw and you got the three-point play opportunity because you were literally in the act of shooting the ball. So instead of, three, instead of the two free throws, when you make the shot, you get a bonus. Now we see these plays that I'm talking about where the player's on the outside, he feels the contact, then he picks it up and throws it at the basket, and it's two free throws. I have no clue when that became considered continuation. continuation. I have no clue philosophically why, it would be continuation. And so instead of me just getting up here and ranting about all these things for the episode, let's just say any of these areas can be reined back in. And yes, you're still going to have great offense with skill. Yes, you're still going to have great offense with X's and O's and strategy, but that's going to immediately change the overall offensive efficacy and how easy it is for the offense to, to dictate and get anywhere they want on the court. Um, Tightening up dribble rules would change dribble penetration, things like that. Moving screens would change how effective these tactics and screening tactics are away from the ball. So I absolutely think there's a way to do it. Whether they should do it or not, um, you know, is another question. I, I don't know. My preference is to tighten it up and have a little bit more balance. But let me ask you something, because you said something very interesting. You were talking about skill. Mm. I do agree that most of us would probably want maximum skill, maximum strategy. It's very, very interesting and fun and just dynamic to watch. Like, oh my God, how can another human do that with his body or her body? That's crazy. So here's an interesting question. Do you get to a place in the future where dribbling rules are lax enough that the skill is no longer really dribbling based, that it's more like a football or other running and slashing sports where you can take, let's say you can, let's say you can gather and take three and a half steps. And so if you look at someone like Giannis, whose his superpower is just like slashing and moving into space at his size, he doesn't have to dribble to do any of that. It's literally all once he's picked up the dribble. Do you think the game still appeals to skill 
if you were to do something like eliminate how, how difficult it is to dribble. I guess I don't know what you mean. What do you mean eliminate how difficult it is to dribble? Like, okay, so if you have to follow so if you have to follow the dribbling rules to dribble yeah. around someone and you cannot you know, back in the old days you, you could only take two steps when you finished your last dribble. So mm-hmm. today to most fans that looks like half a step or one step yep. is allowed. So most of what you're doing when you drive is dribbling the basketball. And you weren't allowed to put your hand under it. You had to do the Bob Cousy like tap, 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 tap. All right. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is what you see with Giannis, where he picks up his dribble at the three-point line and then gets the gather and then the two full pause decelerated Euro strides. And I'm I'm picking him not because of our shtick with you as a Bucks fan or him him being known for committing as many offensive fouls as Shaq back in his heyday. I'm picking him because that literally is his superpower. Like his skill is almost more like a football player where he's like somehow able to bend and slash around players in space, but he's not dribbling anymore. Think of all your favorite Giannis highlights. Most of them don't have dribbles, right? They're once he's picked up the dribble, he's doing something extraordinary. Is that still considered sort of maxing out the skill or are there certain like basketball specific elements that need to maintain and maybe dribbling is one of them for us to think that way? Man, that's an interesting question because I think when I when I think back to other players that sort of mastered this idea, e- even before this era, we're talking like 15 years or so ago now, of you pick up the ball and you're doing something special with it. You know, you think of guys like Manu Ginobili. You think of guys like Dwayne Wade. Like, I think Donovan Mitchell right now does this Dwayne Wade move really, really well where he picks up the dribble and he, like, windmills it over the defender, right? Like, not in the air. Like, he picks up the dribble and with that hand, he kind of lifts it over the defender and then, like, finishes his steps. And Dwayne Wade was really good at this sort of thing back in say like 2008 2009 however much through his prime so I think like it's still exciting to see that specific skill being worked on I don't necessarily know if like if we need to like juxtapose dribbling with that because I think those are two separate skills that are interesting to watch and I think somebody like Giannis might just like push the boundaries of that one particular skill because if you're able to blend in all of these different skills like Donovan Mitchell Jalen Brunson these guys are like really quick at being like oh I step back and now I'm gonna explode and then I'm gonna like work in this sort of like steps after I pick up the dribble I think that's all really exciting right and I think the fact that they have better dribbling skills make them more dynamic at like getting to the rim at a smaller size than somebody like Giannis who you know for whatever reason doesn't necessarily have the handle of those guys so I think like I don't necessarily think we need to like attack one side of that skill set and just say, oh, if you have both of these skill sets, it just makes you that much more dynamic of an offensive player. No, I'm, I'm asking because I'm trying to get to the idea of like whether there is an essence of certain things that are basketball skill, uh, because to your point, and it sounds like you're going in this direction, I do think you're implying that you could get away with dribble. You could get rid of dribbling. And if players still did amazing things with their body and had like really cool dance steps and, you know, spun around and Euro strode, strode, Euro strode, Euro strided. (laughs) What? what, (laughs) How are we past tensing the Euros? Euro stepped uh, around defenders, right? That that could still be aesthetic and captivating and considered great skill. That's where I'm really going in my head is like, is there a certain boundary we have to maintain when we talk about trying to empower the players to be the most skilled, because to your point, it sounds like you're saying implicitly, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're advocating for, well, 
when they added something like the gather step and allowed players to do this thing where they like dribble, 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 pick it up, and then take these two crazy steps in like CJ McCollum, like jumping from the free throw line into the corner to get his step back jumper off, that that actually is super exciting and a skill into of itself that pairs with the dribble. And so we can actually go outside the boundaries of what is considered traditional basketball and still be very safe and exciting. I think that is the case, but I do think there's probably an upper limit because I still am not really like 100% sure how much is allowed for the gather step because it feels like there are times where it's like, oh, wait a second, that feels like an extra step in there. Like, I don't know how well that's like defined or or watched during the NBA game. I think like even like the step through, which is something I feel like I never saw like years ago. I feel like J- Julius Randle, for instance, does the step through move a lot where he like, you know, he gets in the pivot and then like he keeps the pivot foot. But then like since you're able to leave the ground, he takes one more step and it. I don't know when I think of like learning the game of basketball when I was younger, that would have been called travel. Right. And I don't think anyone really used that sort of move, say, 15 or so years ago. Again, I don't know why I'm picking 15 years. That feels like a like a nice 2008 ish sort of vibe like before this. So I think that was an old school. I think that was an old school move. I think you saw that move, you know, way, way back before our time. Um, I feel like Kevin McHale did it. It was like it was a move that older guys used. And then I think kind of went out of style for a long time, which might be why. To your point, it feels so weird when you start seeing it again. I think interestingly, I actually I feel like the WNBA has used it a lot more. Like I feel like women's basketball always used the step through and then the NBA yep. kind of moved away from it. So I, I'm not I'm not really sure. I'm not advocating for like getting rid of dribbling or like expanding the gather step to being like you have four steps or whatever else. But I do. I think I just like the idea of like when you pick up the dribble, you should have some license to be able to do something creative. Right. It doesn't mean you should be able to like take an extra step beyond what the rules say. But I do think that ability to like. Like, I don't know, it's a skill in itself that Donovan Mitchell can basically turn his, like, ankle at 90 degrees and still be able to, like, push off and finish with, like, his left hand. Like, that's really cool to see, right? But there needs to be an upper limit for, like, what's allowed on that sort of drive. So one of the things that's happened as these rules have changed and as the sport has evolved is turnovers have gone way down. That's part of the reason offenses are so effective instead of turning it over 14 or 15 percent of your possessions now for the last few years the league average has kind of flatlined at maybe uh, 12 12 and a half percent something like that and so if you break down the turnover data Cody and you say like well how often are players losing the ball on the dribble that's hand scored so I don't know if it's perfect but there is a thing in the play-by-play that has to do with lost ball turnovers and if you look at lost ball turnovers Back in 2004, it was 3.3 lost ball turnovers per 100. The last five years, the number's like 2.6. This year, it's 2.8, stuff like that. So that right there is another, you know, like one possession a game where instead of turning it over, we're getting a shot. Where does that come from? It comes from all these dribbling rules and making it easier to get around the court. Is that more exciting? Is there an upper boundary to it? Is there a limit that people want to put on it? I don't know. I'm just here to observe those things. Uh, personally, my, like my preference is to allow more physicality with defense. I think that's the most important thing. I think the other big thing to answer your first question about change is defensive three seconds. Hmm. I, I don't know why we need to have defensive three seconds anymore. It is literally handcuffing the defense it's a rule that prevents where the defense can go where is where is it preventing the defense from going the most important valuable place on the court so I'm not entirely sure why we still not need to have defensive three seconds 
But that's just another example of something you could change that would potentially uh, help the defense fight back or, or maybe get a little more quote-unquote balance. I do want to throw one more uh, turnover stat at you because I know you've mentioned it before. Travels. Hmm. Travels per game. 2004, there actually weren't that many travels per game called way, way back then. But in the middle of the 2000s, we started to see it go up. Uh, 2009, 2009, we had 1.22 travels per game. Do you, do you hear that? My dog is talking to me. I don't know if it's coming through. It's not coming through to me, no. Okay, all right. It could be on the recording. We'll find out later. She's literally right here off camera if you're on YouTube talking to me in Husky, which is a very loud sort of... Um, anyway. What, what was that? What, what's Husky then? <laughs> you sound like, like like Dory doing like a whale sound in the ocean. It's a little, it's, it's a little Chewbacca. You know, Chewbacca was... Uh, was modeled after George Lucas's Malamute, uh, who I think he actually, I think George Lucas got that, got his, yes, his Malamute was named Indiana, and he named Indiana Jones after his dog as well. Um, anyway, where was I? What was, what was I talking about? Talking about traveling. Travels, yes. So you used to have like 1.2 travels every 100 possessions called in 2009, 1.1 in 2014, and we're down to 0.9. So all these, you can see the signals everywhere is the point, right? It all adds like a, a quarter turnover here, a half turnover here. It's a little easier to get to this place. Um, these are all things within the rules. If you have no more rule stuff to get to explicitly, I just want to talk about some shooting skill because it's just, it's blowing my mind. Let's get to the skills. I don't want to make this a, a rules thing, but one thing that I think is interesting to go back to, because I think if you go through like, you're, you're pouring through the scrolls of all the data from this, this century, if I'm not mistaken, 2007 sees like this huge explosion in turnovers, or at least like travels called, right? I, th I think this is something that we may have talked about at some point off mic. Briefly. And I think it's briefly, right? Is it the whole year or is it just at the beginning of the year? I think it's during the whole season. Oh, I, the thought whole it was season. I thought it was just the beginning of the year, but yeah, go ahead. If you look at team numbers, right, like the number of uh, who's leading like the entire century in turnovers, like basically all of them are from 2007, if <laughs> I'm not mistaken. And Ben, do you recall one very large change that happened during the 2007 NBA season? Yeah, that's why I thought it was the beginning of the year. They changed the ball. They had like a synthetic ball yeah. at the beginning of the year, but it was such a disaster. The players didn't like it and they couldn't handle it. And it caused so many dribbling issues that they went back to the old ball after a very short period of time to start the season. Players were getting paper cuts, Ben. Like, I remember, like, players would cut their fingers on this ball. That was just a weird, a weird disaster for a second. And I really do think that's a big reason that turnovers pumped up. That's besides the conversation here. But I do think, like, going down memory lane and looking at, like, the one time the NBA tried a new ball in the last 20 years and it was an utter failure, I think that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, no, it was wild. It was wild. Travels that season were 1.7 1. per 100. Um, and there, there, there was a lot going on in, in that year. But. Let's get back to the some of the skill side of this, because this is actually what started this episode exploration for me recently, just noticing the trend, uh, the shooting, mm -hmm. the explosion of shoot. Everyone knows it, right? Everyone knows there's like more shooting. But when you actually see what's happening, it is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. We've had camera tracking data for a decade going back to the 2014 season. This is our 11th season that we've had this data. And back in 2014, if you're not paying attention, Cody, closely, you go, okay, 
wide open three-point percentage in 2014 was 39% league-wide. 39%. Open three-point shooting, that means the defender is four to six feet away, is 35%. 39% wide open, 35% open. This season, we are at 39% once again on wide open threes. And we are once again at about 30, what did I say? 35%, 35%, exactly the same, right? So if you're not necessarily paying close attention, you think to yourself, okay, the percentages aren't changing. Shooting a wide open three has like the same value, but you know, what's changed a lot in the last 10 years. That's really important in this story. What has that been? It is the number of attempts that are being taken on open and wide open shots. And I think the naive view or or maybe the partial view of this story is like, oh, offenses are so much better at creating open threes. Players are so much better at creating open threes. But I only think that's part of the story because there are now more players on the court who are skilled at shooting threes. There are now more players on the court who, when they are open, are going to jack a three. There are now more players on the court who are part of an action where Kristaps Porzingis, I'm popping out to instantly catch and like quick release a three, like I'm a 6'3 guard, even though I'm 7'1 or 7'2. That's a big change. And so when we compare actual attempts in that time period, what we see is alarming. 10 years ago, the league-wide average was 11 open threes per game. 11 open threes per game. That number steadily started to climb. It went 11, 12, 14, 15. In 2019, a banner year for basketball, uh, a lot of stuff happened in 2019, we got to about 17 open threes per 100 possessions at 38%. Seven, so we go from like 10 or 11 to 17. And it just stayed there. It's just stayed there until this season. <laughs> until this season, Cody. Uh, we are now up to almost 19 open threes per game at 39%. So what's happened in the last decade is the percentage is the same and we've doubled the volume. And anyone familiar with all our talks about efficiency and volume scaling in basketball knows how hard that is. We've almost doubled the volume league-wide of open three-point shots without changing the percentage because of all the great shooters that are out on the court. And we see the same thing with the uh, open, not the wide open, but the open, the four to six foot categorization, where we're at 35%, but 12 and a half attempts right now per year that started at eight 10 years ago it was eight eight nine ten eleven um that's actually down slightly because i think it shifted more x's and o's wise this season to getting better open threes but that's the story the story is there is just so much skill out there and then of course we know what that means the shooting creates space the space opens up all the other x's and o's and driving lanes and uh, good luck stopping it I think what's wild is if you stack up every single team that's played a season during the century, and I think it comes out to about 716 team seasons. Gonna, remember that, 716 team seasons. I'm going to be referencing this coming up a few times when we get to some other numbers. 716 team seasons. Okay. We 716 got team 716. seasons, 716. I'm locked and loaded. Let's go. So 
in the top 30 of those seasons, only one team from this current season is in that top 30, right? The Miami Heat right now, this is when I checked yesterday. It was December 20th when I pulled these numbers. Uh, the Miami Heat were 26th out of all those teams. No other team from this season are in that. So like you're saying here, it's not necessarily that teams are making like three-pointers at a much higher percentage. It's the volume. And I think what I want to talk about with you, Ben, like what, what is happening here? Like, is it just like you just said, the, the fact that there's so many more guys that can shoot threes. We have these big men. We talked about Chris Tapp's Porzingis and his ability to step like five feet behind the line and fire. Uh, do you think that contributes more? Or do you think there's some schematic element, kind of like what you were talking about in that Pacers-Hawks video where just like both teams were just like, all right, let's go. Let's hurry it up. Let's kick it up the floor. Let's fire a three right away. Like, is it is it pushing uh, pushing the pace so that we get more threes earlier in the clock? Is it like the fact that certain kinds of offenses are opening up these threes and making it impossible for teams to go and contest? What's going on here in your mind that's like driving this number to go up as much as it is? Well, in addition to the shooting skill being on the court, I absolutely think we continue to see an expansion of X's and O's. And we can talk maybe a little bit about the Pacers game or the Pacers as a team and playing with pace. Uh, that video we did on them. But think about some of the other sort of evolution of X's and O's schematic videos we've done in the last two seasons on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. Recently, we had the video on the evolution of sort of this pass and chase action. I really, in retrospect, I really should have just titled that whole video, The Evolution of, of Give and Go. Uh, we could have started in the backyard. <laughs> we could have started in the backyard with a little two-on-two give and go action or something like that and expanded it from black and white footage from there. But that, that is the video. That is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the evolution of this action that is the simplest, oldest action in the book of passing the ball and cutting and running after passing and specifically the power uh, these days of using that action, running after the, after the pass, like where you throw the pass, and then everything that flows from that. And how different that is than when it happened in the 30s or when it happened in the 80s or whatever. Uh, I actually think, from what I've seen, that was an action that kind of went out of style for a little while. It was very popular in the earlier days. It was popular in the 60s. I've got some clips in there of the Russell Celtics and Wilt Chamberlain's team and Alex Hannum, the legendary coach uh, who's won multiple championships. He loved to use those kinds of actions. And then you'd see it in the 2000s a little bit more. It was part of the triangle offense. Uh, you would see the Spurs use it a little bit more out on the perimeter. The Suns with Steve Nash. And so you could start to see just how like a very simple action can become more powerful when you have more skill on the court, when you have more shooters on the court, when you have more space on the court. Last year, we did the evolution of the pick and roll and what's happened there, just taking this like basic play idea and giving it more space, adding a second player, adding a third player, adding cuts and actions that are happening exactly at the same time and what that means when you've got not just the great shooting skill, but the athletes and the playmaking and the ability to handle the ball differently. This goes, see, it always connects a little bit back to the rules as just a, a fundamental thing. And I know we took a long time on the rules earlier, but the reason is because it's the backbone. So when you get better dribbling access because of the rules, Everything connects on a play like the pick and roll. Everything connects on a play like pass and chase or give and go or something like that. And then even stuff just the way teams are using multiple players and actions. 
Cody, um, we we were looking at this play. I want to attempt to describe this play on radio. This is going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge because by design, it is not a play made for radio. But I want to describe it to convey the complexity of the kind of offensive sets you can run now. It is a play that the University of Connecticut men's team likes to run. And it starts with the ball handler throwing it to his teammate who gets a little screen at the top of the key. All right? That teammate then pitches it right back to the ball handler. And the guy who set the screen for the first teammate who received the pass, he turns around and sets a screen for the ball handler. So now we might be rolling a little pick and roll out of that movement. No, we're not doing pick and roll out of that movement. That guy is slipping that screen. He's veering off. He's setting another screen back to the original dude who caught the ball, who's doing a U-turn, and he's slice-cutting across the face of the, the key, coming in the other direction. He doesn't get the ball. The ball handler passes it to another teammate. He gets another screen. I mean, we're only like two and a half seconds into the play. If you could still figure out what's going on just on radio, more power to you. I, I think the point is made, right? Like, what ends up happening is in about six seconds, there's like five screens, three different cuts, two different pieces of misdirection. A dude who did all this at the beginning that I've been trying to describe, he slices all the way to the other side of the corner to clear the paint. Someone slips a screen, backdoor cut, layup. That happens in like seven seconds. That is extraordinarily difficult to guard when you also need to worry about all five ball handlers being able to put it on the deck and drive and all five players on the court shooting. And that's the X's and O's part that I think is never going back in the bottle, regardless of what changes we make. Nor do I think we want them to. Like, I think that sort of dynamic offense is just a lot more fun to watch. Like, you and I watch a lot of historical hoops, and I I promise you all, if you go back to the the 80s, the 70s, and you watch some actions, it doesn't look like that. Like, the play that Ben described that you all perfectly have in your mind, because Ben's (laughs) words are are a painting, he Bob Rossed that, and just, like, threw up these wonderful clouds of veer screens and whatever else is going on, you're like, yep. A a cozy little cabin was in that play, yeah. (laughs) I think we could use a little rip screen in this action. Let's let's put a little a little waterfall squirrel over here on the back door cut yeah go ahead i think there's some interesting downwind outcomes that aren't just wide open three-point percentage too and i think one of the biggest like statistical things that stand out to me right now especially from this season and the last couple of seasons is actually team field goal percentage at the rim Okay, so we talk like everyone talks about threes like, oh, analytics tells you to take a three. No, actually, analytics takes tells you to take the most efficient shot. Whatever. Everyone knows that Uh, scoring at the rim. That's uncontested. It's a pretty efficient shot, but that's probably the most efficient shot. And if you look at Ben, how many how many team seasons are there? This century, how many are we talking about? 716. I don't know why I'm supposed to. There's like a quiz on 716 later. What? Go ahead. 716. If you look, if you rank all those 716 team seasons. (laughs) In rim field goal percentage, Ben, mm. rim field goal percentage, mm. six of the top 12 are from For this, this season. season. Yeah, so that ben, was the prestige. I, that was the prestige right there. I'm not done with that yet, Ben. 22 of the top 23 are from the last three seasons. Okay? And the first team that appears from before the 2011 season is the 2001 Philadelphia 76ers, who appear 49th on the list. Okay, and we've talked about this in in terms of LeBron, where if you look at a lot of like LeBron's rim attempts and his rim percentage, it's basically unchanged 
from like 2014, 2013, when he was clearly like much more physical, much more athletic, things like that. And it's not necessarily that somebody like LeBron has just stayed exactly the same in terms of athleticism and driving ability. The game has changed to the point where teams are able to get to the rim on some of these wide open attempts and just get easier layups out of it. Like you think, let's let's take the Philadelphia 76ers for a second, right? And the Nick Nurse of it all and the way that he's able to utilize Joel Embiid, he's up top, right? And so if Joel Embiid has the ball 16 feet away from the basket, first of all, you have to be on top of him or else he's just going to fire away and hit one of his just like unguardable mid-range shots, okay? But you also have to be close to him because Tyrese Maxey is going to be flying from over here and if your defender isn't like high enough to stop him, he's going to pull from three, right? But if you're too close to him, he's just going to blow by you and get to the basket and score. But then if you like cut off and try and stop him from getting to the basket, he just dumps it off to Embiid, who's just a bear under the basket and either draws free throws or scores uh, scores some kind of a layup, right? So when you have these talented big men that are able to stretch the floor and whatever else, it just like adds so much more dynamism to the idea of like, oh, these guards also are coming off, then you have to pay attention to them. So it opens up the two most valuable spots on the court, which are the three-point line, and the rim. And I guess you could say the free throw line, but also like getting to the rim opens that up as well. But that's the other aspect that people don't talk about is the fact that players are just getting easier shots at the basket as opposed to just getting easier shots from the three-point line. Well, there are no places to hide anymore. Mm-hmm. There, there are no weak spots. So basket, one of the coolest things about basketball, I've written about this so many times, is it's not this linear one plus one plus one equals three. There are different interaction effects going on. And one of the interaction effects that I think I started to notice and we started to see in the 2000s was the one that jumps out to me was uh, Vlad Vlad Radmanovich with the Lakers Mm -hmm. and being a stretch four in that lineup. And what happened when you had a stretch four in that lineup who was a skilled three-point shooter versus taking him off the floor? And all of a sudden, you just start to look around the league and you start to be like, now, wait a second. When Hito Turglu's on the court, good things are happening. And when he's off the court, the team, like independent of the overall player's skill, uh, the team may not be that much better. These players aren't necessarily superstars. But if you go see the lineups with the best offensive ratings, now wait a second, Ryan Anderson's playing a lot of basketball. Uh, things are going really well. Why? Why is that? Why is the offense so good when he's out there? It was the ability to have an extra shooter and create that space. That was the four man. Now we've done it with the five-man. So there are no more places to hide. There are no weaknesses. There's no one who can't do everything anymore. And that creates the dynamic tension that you talked about where you have two high-value real estate spots. You have to protect one and the other at the same time. And obviously, I think the one that you still want to protect more is the rim because an open three even at 39%, even a 40% three-point shooter, that's worth 1.2 points. But an open layup is worth like 1.8 points. It's incredibly high, 90, 80, 90-something percent if you can't get someone over to contest the shot. So how do you deal with that when you have five guys out there that can do everything? Um, strategically, I don't know. I think understanding pace, understanding the fact that if you move and run and play really hard. That's why part of why players are playing fewer minutes. They used to not sprint down the court and then sprint across the court over and over and over again, setting different screens and actions. So 43 minutes a game in 1992 was very, very, very different on your body than 43 minutes a game today. 
And as teams have figured that out, they say, well, let's play our best players 33 minutes and let's have them play harder. And then let's have the bench guys come in and they play hard. And we don't have to worry about old school Hoosiers, Gene Hackman, rah-rah, full court presses. We don't need to do that. We just need to get the ball out of the basket, run down the court, and immediately get in to an efficient action. We understand what the efficient actions are. They're open threes. They're layups. They're getting to the free throw line. And to your point, Cody, if you are a very good shooter from anywhere in the mid-range, the floater range, whatever, that's a good shot. And as our shot clock dwindles down, now I understand that it's hard to score against this time pressure. Now I'll just throw it to Joel Embiid at the free throw line. And he can take, we, we had a, we had a, I think a comment or a question. I don't think it was a very nice comment or question. Now that I think about it, I saw someone saying something like, isn't Joel Embiid shooting 48% from the mid range bad 48% from the mid range is bad because it's 0.96 points per possession. And you guys are talking about like 1.18 points per possession. So Cody, isn't 0.96 points per possession terrible? And the answer is no. It's not. We've done stuff on the mid-range before, but the short of it in something in the context of a conversation like this is, A, you're only seeing the shots in those possessions. You're not seeing all of the playmaking that that sets up, and you're not seeing all the free throws that that draws. So just on free throws alone, Embiid's mid-range touches are probably over one. They might be over 1.05. They might be 1.11. Given how much he draws free throws, they might be 1.2. I have no idea. But they are definitely higher than just the raw field goal percentage, right? The second part of that is what I said a second ago about the clock. Push with pace. Stress the defense instantly. Try to get your most efficient stuff early. You're not going to the Joel Embiid elbow mid-range post-up at 18 seconds on the shot clock. You're going to that later in the possession when the value of the possession is worth way less than 1.18 points per possession. In fact, a half-court possession in the NBA is not worth 1.18 points per possession this year. A half-court possession is worth more like 1.05, right? And so as you get less valuable in the possession you have, that 48% shot becomes more and more valuable. That's all the skill that's out there all the time. And that's why these teams are so unstoppable. That's why Philadelphia's offensive rating in the last month is like 124 points per 100 possessions. Two things. Number one, you mentioned the like full court pressure of it all. We've referenced this a couple times now. That might be part of the answer for defenses. Not like a hardcore full court pressure where you have like all five of your guys like past half court and they're like really dogging everyone and trapping like 75 feet from the basket, but some kind of pressure so that teams can't just sprint up into these actions, right? Having somebody there so that you have to, the the ball handler has to be a little bit more conscious of what they're doing instead of just letting Tyrese Halliburton be like, all right, I'm going to dribble up here and I'm going to look over here. And while I'm looking over there, I'm going to kick it to the corner over here. Buddy Heald shoots a three. Boom, I'm running back on defense, right? But all of a sudden you're like, oh crap, Anthony Black's right here. Jalen Suggs is right here. I got to actually like do something to get past him. Like that, putting that cognitive load on these guys is really a key part to slowing down the the offenses. And then you know, going back to the Embiid, like we were just ta- like you were just talking about with mid range. Wouldn't you rather have a layup over a mid range shot? Yeah, 
Yeah, you would. You would rather have a layup. You would rather have a wide open three. But like you just said, sometimes it gets to the point where NBA defenses are good enough that they're going to force you to take a shot that you don't want to take. And here's another interesting thing, Ben. Here's another interesting number out of, Ben, those 716 team seasons of this last century. Or uh, seven, you, you weren't joking about 716. Is this the prestige? <laughs> is this? Are we getting to the last? Is this the big reveal? Uh, all of it's the big reveal, Ben. This entire thing is behind the curtain. We are backstage here, here on out. Ben. And here's what is fascinating. Long mid-range field goal percentage. Seven of the top 25 this century are from this season. Long mid-range field goal percentage, right? So teams have brought down the amount of long mid-range field goal shots that they're taking, but the ones that they take, they are making them more than pretty much any other time that we've ever seen. So like what we're seeing with offenses is just perfectly... I can't think of the word when you make things as good as possible. You're, you're talking about an equilibrium. You're talking about the balance, really, because the free throw, the the field goal percentage on those shots is going up because you can be more selective. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the opposite of what I was fawning over earlier with the three point shooting, right? Because when you have to take fewer long twos, when you don't have as many ISO mid range, you know, uh, clear out the side, get it to Paul Pierce and see if he can make a 17 foot pull up right on your head. You can be more selective. So the, the volume goes down, the efficiency goes up. That happens organically as you prioritize your 40% threes, your 60% layups. And it's all the skill. It's everything we've talked about in this entire episode. For me, I think about something like three-man actions and what it means now to run a three-man action in space. We had some video content last year on the rise of these things, even something like the Golden State Warriors split cuts, where you throw it to the post guy. He's not posting up to score like it's 1988, right? Don't clear out the side and back down and throw up a hook shot, Kevin Willis. That's not what's happening. Uh, I have to sneak in a little, like I have to throw in some old players, Cody, or it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a thinking basketball episode. Hey, we got bingo from you earlier when you started talking about Jalen Suggs and Anthony Black and and your Orlando Magic, but back on track, uh, throw it to Draymond. And now he's got the ball and two other guys, Curry and Clay can run off each other and cut and screen and move and things like that. The, these three man actions are just so hard to defend when you, take into account everything else we've talked about in this episode. And I think about the evolution, let's go back to the evolution of pick and roll, the Spain pick and roll, where you have a third player involved in the pick and roll. That player is usually sitting in the paint or around the free throw line or something like that. And he's going to come up and set another screen for the original screener in pick and roll. And then he can go out, he can, he can fly out to the three point line and he can shoot a three. I mean, does anything perfectly embody what we're talking about more than a pick and roll action with three players. It could be staggered pick and roll. One guy pops, one guy rolls. And now Luca has, I can hit Derek lively for my lob and my dunk, my, my beautiful rim field goal percentage that I know all the analytics people are going to be so excited about in the department, or I can kick it out to Tim Hardaway jr. Because he just popped out to the three point line that tension, that interaction, I mean, this stuff is happening in two and a half seconds. When we do videos, I got to rewind and pause and slow it down. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's awesome. It's exciting to me. It's spectacular. And I, <laughs> with, with, with the whole picture, I mean, we might have a 120 offensive rating average month coming up in the NBA. 
with the Mavericks, like you were just talking, it's not even just a three-man action sometimes, Ben. You see it, you see a four-man action. There's like a double stagger there. And then that player that's going to set that like screen the screener is hanging out there. So there's actually two guys. One of them dives. I don't know what the other one does. Just runs somewhere else, maybe sprints off to a quarter. And then Tim Hardaway Jr. pops, right? So at a certain point, we're just going to have these actions where it's just like all four guys that don't have the ball are just going to be at the free throw line. And they're just going to start rotating around each other <laughs> and then just start slingshotting off. It's like when Steph Curry and Jordan Poole would like slingshot off each other. Yeah. We're going to start seeing stuff like that with all four guys and it's going to cause complete chaos. Yeah, but this is where it comes full circle back to the rules because the moving screens. Uh, I was doing some work recently on the 1975 Golden State Warriors for a documentary. We'll, we'll, I don't know when it's going to come out or, or where it's going to be or whatever. But the, those teams set a lot of screens. And the difference was you would like stand in place at the elbow to set the screen. That's how you set a screen. If you moved, it was a moving screen. So there were a ton of screens, but today we are talking about players who sprint into most screens. Sometimes they don't actually set a screen. They ghost the screen by like acting like they're going to set a screen and they just keep on going. That would have been a moving screen back in the day. You have all these guys cutting and running into each other and the screener itself leaning and set like turning into a football lineman protecting the quarterback. So that's another perfect example about how you can change the dials of the efficiency by saying, okay, we know these actions are spectacular, but the defense is going to have a better chance to work around the screens, navigate around the screens, switch and rotate and whatnot when the players setting the screen can't move like they could in 1975. If you let them move like they could today or the future, if you follow the trend line, because like, you know, in 2008, there was plenty of moving screens. Kevin Garnett is out there giving a little hip, a little tag, a little shuffle, right? But compare that to today. And I mean, like we, a fun video would just be to watch a Bam on a bio game and see how many times he sets what would, what would used to be considered a legal screen. That kind of stuff. That's the evolution of what's been allowed on screening. And it plugs directly into how teams are unlocking movement, screening, three-man actions, four-man actions. Because the actions would still be great, but instead of 62%, it would be 56%. Or whatever the number. I don't know what the number is, right? But in theory, they're all connected because of that stuff. And where do you draw the line on things like screening is is so tough because like if you set the screen, like when does it count that you have to have the screen set? Because like, all right, so maybe the ball handler is going to move a little bit. So you're going to angle the screen a little bit more this way. Maybe you'll shift this. Way. You know what? I'm going to set turn around and set it for this. It, it's you're, the, the, you're the line is so say, tough. You're speaking as a big man. We, you're giving your you're, you're revealing your cards. Only a big man <laughs> would uh, would say it's tough. Not to know if you can, you know, do I, is, what if I throw my hip into this guard coming at me? A little, little, little elbow. Yeah. Listen, listen, one of the more recent times when I was playing basketball, I, I had someone come, it's like, dude, that's an illegal screen. I'm like, all right, you, call it. Pick up, like, pick up, yeah, you got pick up. Like, fine, yeah. call it. Like, be the guy that's going to call it an illegal screen, the pickup game. Like, m- maybe that's mean of me. Maybe that's, I'm not throwing hips. Like, I'm not throwing elbows. I'm not trying to, to injure people. But, you know, I definitely, definitely change the angle mid screen sometimes. I'm like, eh, whatever. What happens if you get plowed through while you're setting an illegal screen and pick up? Is, this, oh. is that just not? Is that the end of the pickup game? It hasn't happened yet. Um, I'm a part, I'm a pretty large individual. Like you'd have to like really be ready to start something if you're like gonna hit me that hard. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm gonna fight you. Like I'm not a fighting kind of person. I think that's, yes, I, that that's came off that way. Saying. I'm just saying you'd yeah. have to like come at me pretty hard to 
to like really knock me down. So I invite that, Ben. I, I like a lot of contact when I'm when I'm playing basketball. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Uh, it's not only the best way to directly support us, but I, I have a correction to make. I have a correction to make. Cause I was going to say you can, you, we, we research these episodes and go through all the stats and things like that. And I pulled up the board in the background as I was saying this, and we track half court points per possession hmm. and it's 1.02 points legal. I said 1.05, it's 1.02. And I think it's a good benchmark. Like hmm. one point per half court possession is really good. It's really efficient. The fact that we're up over one point now is just spectacular. It used to be like 0.9 or 0.95 back in the earlier days when Synergy started tracking this kind of stuff. So 1.02 points hmm. is league wide. Make of that what you will. But uh, we've got plenty of team stats like that that we use to analyze stuff. Um, player stats as well. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball cody any final parting thought we it's the holidays um i don't know if we're going to record we'll be back next week for something i don't know what we're going to you, you wanted to live stream all five christmas games yeah on monday yeah we'll just sit here for 12 hours and just just go for it we'll bring in food it'll be a good time <laughs> What's it other... good old-fashioned mukbang is that is that <laughs> what the kids call it <laughs> do, you have, do you have any final, is that old-fashioned is is mukbang old-fashioned I, mean, I i i don't have is, a clue is, is it I, mukbang I do know, or mukbang i thought i thought it was a an ong i thought okay. it was that but i don't I'm know for sure i could be very wrong someone's gonna call us out and be like well you still old. you had the chicken meme down last time this came up so i just default to any internet related thing i i default to you <laughs> Please don't. i do not certain. want to be known for for knowing the internet that's a yes. deep and dark place cody's the internet guy around here <laughs> uh, do you have final thoughts on this topic before we wrap the show you know what um it's just it feels weird ben it, 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 well i need to collect my thoughts here i got really excited went too many directions um, oh you collect your thoughts well i give thanks to everyone who commented on Spotify, that was super cool. We got like four times the normal comments that we get on Spotify. Uh, last time or two episodes ago, we were talking about how you can comment on Spotify. Yeah. So that's that's fantastic. Thanks to everyone for doing that. Yeah, you all rule. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Um, I, I miss the days when we celebrated 50-point games, Ben. I don't know if it's because they're like too easy now. Like We didn't even talk about Keegan Murray. Draw, like 12 threes. 47 points. Joel Embiid dropped another 51 point. Like, this one actually counted. Like, his other 50-point games this season didn't count. This one against the Timberwolves did count. Um, there was another one, wasn't there? Oh, Jalen Brunson dropped, like, nine threes. Nine, nine for nine on threes. Yeah, nine yeah. for... Like, I thought maybe we would talk about those a little bit, but I I, I just don't even know. It's I, I missed the excitement when somebody dropped 50. Those were good no good times. I think 50 is the new 35. I mean, like, legit... <laughs> It doesn't even feel like the new 40. You know what I mean? Like like 60 kind of is the old 50, but even 60, even there are 60-point games don't get people excited at the way they used to. And I think I think that's the trade-off, right? It's like there was this old commercial when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were Cody, sorry, there's another sport. Golf. We're going to go back we're going to go back, we're going to go back in time. In the 1990s there was this old commercial about I think it was a Sports Center commercial where they had the home run race and then afterwards sports center was celebrating the fact the phrase in the um uh, excuse my phraseology here this is i want to i want to quote the commercial this is the commercial talking the commercial said quote chicks dig the long ball 
That's what the commercial said, right? So it was all about uh, showing up for batting practice and seeing these guys hit home runs. And the whole thing that we talked about today kind of reminds me of this idea of, well, that only goes so far because when everyone's hitting 70 home runs, it might not feel as cool to hit 70 home runs. And the basketball version is, what did we say a couple episodes ago? Embiid's averaging like 35 points a game. And does anyone care? I mean, when James Harden was there in like 2019, it was this, it was a big deal. It was a big deal because Kobe did it and Michael Jordan did it in 1987, uh, 37 points per game. And basically like the only, the only guy before that was Wilt up in that territory. And now we've got more 20 point per game scores than ever. We've got more 30 point per game scores than ever. We have all these 50 point games that are happening all the time that are just like blips on the radar. That I think is the trade-off when you, when you water it down, it loses its effect and it resets the bar where, you know, Mitchell had a 70 point game last year. And I think if that happened 10 years ago, that just would have been like one of the seasons of the story, one of the stories of the season. And now it's like, okay, that's kind of like a 54. We'll, we'll give Mitchell like 54 or 55 for that 70-point game, even though he had 55 points and a half, basically. Man, I'm looking at the database right now. Joel Embiid's averaging 37 points per 75 and plus 7.5 <laughs> efficiency. <laughs> what, what is this? His BPM is up to uh, 9.4. This is ridiculous. Yeah, we so, got we to end the show. We got to end the show. Uh, th- <laughs> thanks, as always, for, for hanging out with us afterwards. Um, and, of course, wherever you are, enjoy your holiday season. If we don't talk to you, we will be back. Uh, next week and uh, of course I hope you're having a great day